Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Dagena Dor, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Levy about his new book, Sokagakai's Human Revolution, The Rise of a Mimetic Nation in Modern Japan, published by the University of Hawaii Press in 2019. Um, Levy, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Dagena. It's a delight. It's a delight to talk to you. Great. Um, so, Levy, I, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. How did you become interested in East Asian studies and specifically in Japan? Okay. Well, I was born and raised in Toronto, Canada, um, and actually turned to the study of Japan just as I entered university. I, uh, In my high school years and before that, I was training very seriously in music, uh, mostly uh, focusing on violin. And then I made a rather abrupt change at 18 to, to not pursue a professional career and instead see basically how far I could get from Toronto. Um, and Japan looked pretty far. I mean, there are other, other factors as well that were at play. Uh, I was enamored at that point of novels by Japanese authors that had been translated into English. So I was reading the works of people who are now considered a little old-fashioned, but were, uh, to me, new like Abe Kobo and Tanizaki Jonichiro, um, Kawabata Yasunari. So I was enamored of this really romantic vision of Japan, and I thought it would be really cool to read, read Japanese um, and, and go to Japan and things like that. So I ended up uh, becoming a Japanese studies major at the University of Toronto. Uh, I did a third year abroad. This is, uh, this is how old I am. This was before the, um, the Hanshin disaster that affected Kobe. I was, I was in... Um, Western Japan at Kansagako University in 1993-94. And uh, that's actually where I first became interested in, in religion. I was fortunate to uh, take a course from uh, an emeritus professor there who was a wonderful guy named uh, Sakai-sensei who took us around to different religious sites. Um, and initially we visited very, very old places like uh, uh, Asuka you know, outside of Nara, so the very oldest forms of Japanese Buddhism and things like that. Then on the second trip, we went to visit what were called Shinshukyo, new religions. And so we visited various sites. But one place we did not visit was Sokogakkai. And we were warned, essentially, at that point that Sokogakkai was this sort of large, yet somewhat unapproachable organization. Um, and I was intrigued by this. I was intrigued by the fact that there's this giant elephant in the room, basically, for Japanese religion. Um, and that... Uh, uh, you know, I, I sort of had this sort of like sort of contrarian desire to to look at the thing that was supposed to be taboo, and that's 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 where that started initially. Um, and so eventually, I, I made my way back to Japan as a um, teacher initially, but then also I became a a student at the University of Tokyo for two years from the year two thousand, and that's where I was able to really begin in earnest with uh, field work with uh, Sokogakai members. That's what's continued to the present. Um, 
So at this point, I've spent something almost uh, two decades as a non-member ethnographic researcher within, within the organization. Well, great. Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, so maybe um, tell us a little bit how you came to write Sokagaka's Human Revolution. Sure. Um, well, this the book uh, is uh, a much revised version of a dissertation that I produced at, at Princeton University under the, uh, the tutelage of Jacqueline Stone. Um, it's uh, a product of uh, many years spent within the group. Uh, basically, I was... I was inspired to write a book that answered some basic questions about Sokogakai, but also more generally about um, groups that are labeled as uh, sort of controversial or so-called new religions. One of the big questions that's, that's hung over Sokogakai for many years is, why did it get so big? So the group is um, unusual in a lot of respects. For one thing, the name, Sokogakai. It's a value creation study association, which you have to admit is kind of an odd name for religion, right? Um, and that's because it didn't start as a religion at all. It began as, a, as a, an educational reform movement. It was founded by school teachers and uh, intellectuals in the turn of the 20th century who were inspired by neo-Kantian philosophy, um, John Dewey, others who were uh, sort of uh, pushing forward with uh, new ways of belonging to the nation in, in uh, proactive and constructive ways. Um, they converted to a form of Buddhism called Nichiren Buddhism. Nichiren was a medieval reformer in Japan uh, who held that only the final teaching of the historical Buddha, uh, Shakyamuni, that is the, the Lotus Sutra, is, uh, is, the is an efficacious way to receive salvation in our age, which is the, the latter day of the Buddhist law. Um, and so uh, the founders of, uh, initial founders of, of the Gakkai, um, a teacher named Magiguchi and his uh, disciple named Toda, uh, converted and became hardcore proselytizers and utterly unwilling to compromise in their singular beliefs and their singular upholding of the lotus and willing to suffer the consequences of, of state persecution. So they, they were active during the wartime years in Japan and under the wartime government, uh, all religions were required to enshrine talismans for the sun goddess, the uh, ancestress of the emperor. They refused to do so and were imprisoned. Makiguchi died of malnutrition in prison during the war. Toda emerges from the wartime imprisonment just, just before the end of the Pacific War in July of 1945 and transforms this group that began as a, um, a, a, a educational reform movement into this massive religious organization and it grew by unbelievable leaps and bounds. So in the early 1950s, there were <clears throat> several thousand members and by the end of the 1950s, there were about one million households that were adherents in, so in, in Japan of Soka Gakkai. His successor, Ikeda Daisaku, who is now the absolute authority in all matters within Sokogakai, took over in, as third president in 1960. And under Ikeda's auspices, Sokogakai grows to be a massive phenomenon, utterly <clears throat> beyond anything, that, uh, any other group in Japan, and becomes Japan's most successful religious export. Um, so just in terms of sheer numbers of adherents, 
there are more members of Soka Gakkai than there are basically of other Japanese groups. And so the big question was why? Why this group? Why? What accounts for this? What accounts for the particular success in, 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 in gaining converts? But also, why does Soka Gakkai look the way it does? Why does it have? Why does it have a, an affiliated political party? It's it's no, actually most famous in Japan for being associated with a, a party called Komento, the Clean Government Party, sometimes called, which is um, part of Japan's ruling coalition. Why do Sokogakai members um, focus on a newspaper? Why why do they have schools like a university and other other kinds of schools? Um, Members carry out a form of almost like a form of taxation, where they they, they, they give uh, on an annual basis to the organization, and other times as well. They have a huge corpus of publications that essentially functions as a national literature. And so, I wanted to provide an answer for the why. And the answer for me uh, was it's in the title of the book, "The Rise of a Mimetic Nation." I really conceive of Sokogakai as mimetic of Japan as a modern nation state. It basically took the very nation state that victimized its founders and transformed it into this utopian ideal. And that accounts for the singular appeal of a different form of national belonging that Sokogakai offers its, its adherents, as well as explaining the particular nature of its, co- its constituent Oh, great. These are really interesting questions that you're investigating. And actually, before we go into this mimetic nation metaphor, um, I have a question about the twin legacies that you mentioned in the preface. Um, So you argue that Sokogakai comprises a great deal more than Buddhism and is instead best conceived as a product of twin legacies. So between lay Nichiren Buddhism and modern Euro-American humanist imports, um, so what does this say about the place of Sokogaka in the landscape of Japanese religions? Yeah, I think, I think that's uh, a really important way to understand, first of all, it's the, the sort of this distinctive nature of the, the, the institutions and also the, the dispositions that members have. And it also accounts for, I think, another reason why it became so distinctly popular. So um, for... When you spend time in the Sokogakai family, or if you spend time uh, engaging with Sokogakai activities, much of your time will not will not actually look very Buddhist on the outside. Certainly, there are there's a there's a strict adhe- uh, adherence to uh, Nichiren Buddhist practices, chanting the Lotus Sutra, most specifically chanting the seven syllables of the sacred title of the Lotus in a, in a, what's called the Daimoku, which is the syllables. There is a reverence for an object of worship called the Gohonzon, which is a replica of a, a calligraphic mandala that was uh, inscribed by Nichiren in 1279. Um, and then there's, of course, reverence for Nichiren's writings, which are known as the Gosho, and, and for the Lotus itself. However, uh, I spent most of my time um, probably because I was, you know, trained so so intensely as a musician, playing music uh, with with Sokogakai members. I joined a symphony orchestra that was uh, run by the Young Men's Division, and we uh, almost exclusively played Beethoven. Uh, Beethoven is considered to be this uh, revolutionary figure. He's a major figure in Japan generally. But within Sokogaka, he takes on a kind of uh, apotheosized image. And for these members... 
playing Beethoven was just as religious an activity as chanting the Lotus Sutra. And so there, there, for them, that it is, there was no distinction. So what does this allow? This means that all the kind of humanistic pursuits that you might want to be uh, to, to go after, uh, including vocational stuff like doing well on your job, uh, no matter what your job might be, can take on a sacred significance that can be accommodated by this by these legacies that formulated Sokagaka at its inception. Okay, great. Thank you for the answer. And the subtitle of the book, um, The Rise of a Mimetic Nation in Modern Japan, is really interesting. So you characterize Sokagaka as a mimetic of the nation state in which it took place. Um, can you tell us more about this idea? Yeah, so um, it, it, in an earlier uh, sort of working out of these ideas, I, I had characterized Sokagaka as an adjunct nation as something that looks an awful lot like a nation state, but is kind of like attached to the main nation state. And through discussions with a lot of, uh, you know, really fine thinkers, uh, including Prasenji Duara and a few others, uh, realized mimesis is a far more provocative and uh, uh, more satisfying explanation for what's going on. For one thing, it's actually, uh, it's about process rather than describing a phenomenon. So as far as I could see, we need to understand how, uh, the things develop and continue to develop. And uh, so I was inspired particularly by the thought of René Girard in this regard about mimetic violence and the notion of the mace of, of imitation as not simply as, uh, you know, simple-mindedly copying something, but as rendering something into an ideal. And also just by, by virtue of reproducing something, of creating an alternative authority of actually creating a, a, comp- a competitive version of something that bears authority. And so this, this offers another explanatory uh, power. So Sokagakai is widely maligned in, in Japan and actually elsewhere as well. Um, it earned a very negative reputation for the, ac- for the actions of its, of its adherents, particularly in its high growth phase of the 50s into the 70s. I hear stories uh, now, more and more actually, of people who are reflecting back on that time where Gakkai members, for example, would stand in the doorway of uh, adherents of rival religions from morning till night, chastising them for belonging to what was called a jashu, or like false sects, and urging them to convert instead to Soka Gakkai. I mean, this was obnoxious behavior, it has to be said, but it works. And so um, it brought people in. Um, so And through this, they, they built all these constituent institutions, things like a political party, uh, the working equivalent of sovereign territory that was protect, protected by cadres of young men who kind of have a de facto military or police role, all kinds of things like that. Um, but by virtue of creating something that looks an awful lot like the state, uh, people, especially government officials, start to regard Soka Gakkai as a, an intimate threat. It's too close to the thing it's imitating. And therefore, is in a way terrifying. It's existentially terrifying, and so the I would say disproportionately panicked reaction against Sokagaka that you see on the part of its religious and political rivals is a product is can be explained through this notion of mimesis. That because it's this rival for something, it's perceived as a rival for something. It, it triggers a disproportionately violent reaction. Well, this is a really refreshing perspective. And, and like you mentioned in the preface, you also anticipate limits for the um, mimetic nation metaphor? 
well, it's a metaphor, right? It's not a checklist for political scientists to go down and say, oh, wait, you're missing this factor and that factor. Yeah, it's it's meant to be uh, sort of uh, an, an inspirational model. And so, I mean, one of the things I struggled with as I was doing this analysis is also the um, in the literature itself on the nation or nation states, nation and state blur. I mean, there are times where something might look like a nation rather than a state or, the, or vice versa. And there's also... Um, uh, really uh, important work by people like Timothy Mitchell and others on the sort of the discursive elements, the way that actually the state kind of precedes itself as uh, as an idea. And so he calls it a state effect. And I really see that happening in Soka Gakka as well. It gives it it's a through by virtue of the, the the actions and even the attitudes of its of, of, its, of its members it creates the the image of the power of the institution that may not even connect to the the practical realities of what's going on, and so there's this sort of um, you're just sort of expected to go along with things because they look like they bear authority, and that 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 has powered a lot of the way that Sokogaka has grown, and also powers a, a lot of the way that um, members respond to injunctions from the administration. And so there's an expectation that you're supposed to just sort of continue to shoulder the um, the uh, the institutional mandates as personal goals. And there's no there may not be like direct orders to each individual person to do so, but they sort of are, are uh, cultivated to take these on and they're rewarded for doing so. And I think that can be compared to this notion of a kind of an effect of the institution itself and how that that aesthetic guides the way that ordinary members are uh, cultivate themselves as disciples within the group. All right, thank you. And and now let's get into the chapters. Sure. Um, chapter two, from an intellectual collective to religion, um, you explore the history of Sokagaka. So yeah. how has the organization developed from a small educational reform society into a massive religion? I, I One thing, I never get sick of looking at Sokagaka's history. I think it's one of the most amazing stories uh, of, of really any any organization anywhere uh, religious or otherwise it, it begins so uh, it's founded by this as I mentioned earlier uh, Makiguchi Tsune Saburo who's this uh, sort of petty bourgeois school teacher who makes his way to the imperial capital of Tokyo from the northern island of Hokkaido he's um, inspired to join what was then a, a thriving intellectual climate but uh, by virtue of not belonging to the upper echelons, uh, the, the social classes that will that would say give him um, uh, sort of unfettered access to to those intellectual circles, he's always sort of an outsider. And I think that that experience uh, translates into subsequent generations. Sokagaka grows uh, uh, it, uh, grows a reputation, especially in the post-war years, uh, kind of a sneeringly referred to as a religion of the poor. Um, and indeed, in its high growth phase, it largely attracted people who had been uh, marginalized socially uh, for, for, by virtue of having been uh, uh, you know, cut out from the access to education, having uh, been women, uh, having been ill, having had their, their childhoods robbed from them during the wartime years. And so there's a sense of, uh, uh, I would say, just like this, this aspirational urge on the part of its uh, of, of the people who really built the group to um, uh, to to respond to having been cut out of uh, what you know what Bourdieu 
refers to as social capital, right? They, they, they're, they're not able to sort of like enter into the power circles. Japan uh, is a place where a lot of people will self-identify as being middle class. And in surveys until recently, something like 90% of people self-identify as being middle class. And that's, that's total crap. It's a completely not. It's a, it's a very socially striated place. And there are lots and lots of people who fell through the cracks during Japan's rise as in what was called the economic miracle in the post-war uh, economic development phase. Those people are, tend to be the types who joined Silicon Guy in those years. They don't sit idle. They, they build the institutions that are going to give them uh, social legitimacy. They build museums. They build universities. Uh, they, they build schools. They take part in musical activities. They write literature. They read literature. So they become extraordinarily adept at, at understanding all of these things. Uh, and the subsequent generations, like the kids now, uh, who are now third and fourth generation, I think of them as kind of like a, a corollary to the immigrant phenomenon, you know, so that their parents were hardworking and poor, um, but they don't suffer, the kids don't suffer the same kind of um, material wants, and also they don't have the same kind of aspirations as their parents because they don't. They haven't. They haven't experienced the same kinds of hardships, and so now Sokagake is kind of uh, in this weird moment uh, of an existential crisis. It's it's I, in a funny way, kind of a victim of its own success. Uh, the, 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 the kids who are going to be taking the group into the twenty first century, who are going to be perpetuating it, perpetuating it past the lifetime of its current charismatic leader Ikeda Daisaku, uh, do not have the same sense of urgency that their parents and grandparents had. So that, that creates this really existential dilemma for, for the group. And I think that can only really be understood by, by the history that I outlined in that chapter, which talks about that development from this sort of like petty bourgeois educational reform thing into this enormous um, sort of millennial uh, ed- uh, religious movement. Yeah, it's certainly a really incredible story. Um, and chapter three, Soka Gakkai's dramatic narrative investigates ways um, Gaka media and their attendant practices conflate Nichiren Buddhism, uh, martyrdom, and modern romantic heroism in a dramatic narrative that relies on tropes from the Japanese educational curriculum. Um, so what are these dramatic narratives? Yeah, um, this is where the twin legacies start to really matter. So Nichiren is this really distinctive figure in, in, I would say, just religious history, and it's specifically in Japanese Buddhist history. So he, it's the only. So uh, if you look at uh, the, the the layout of Japanese religious uh, Japanese Buddhist sects, it's the only one named for its founder. Really, They're the only major one at least. There's a reason for that because there's really nothing quite like Nichiren. So he's born in 1222. Uh, he becomes like all uh, Buddhist monks of his time, uh, a follower of the Tendai sect. But uh, he becomes to, uh, to he comes into sort of conflict with uh, the the teachings there and breaks off on his own, and develops a reputation for being absolutely uncompromising, willing to hold the line on his conviction that the only way for people of Japan to, to, re- to realize salvation in this degraded age is to exclusively uphold the Lotus Sutra. And he uh, remonstrates the government of his time. He's exiled twice. Uh, the government attempts to uh, execute him once. 
he, he dies at the age of 60, which in his age, in his era, was a fairly advanced age. But he nonetheless sort of created a model of martyrdom, of this willingly uh, giving up his life for the sake of the, the mission. And um, so since in the centuries after Nichiren's lifetime, there's been this whole series of Nichiren Buddhist groups uh, that are led by, by clerics, but also by lay people, people who basically take Nietzsche's biography as a model for their own lives. And uh, generally, this, this includes some form of confronting governmental authority. Um, and there's something that really, it, it seems like the, in the 20th century in particular, there's a resonance between Nietzsche's single-minded, uncompromising uh, approach to life and uh, the attitudes that took shape in the modern era. And there's just something about that that is very inspiring. So a lot of the, the largest groups in Japan that emerged around that time, not just Soka Gakkai, but Risho Kosekai, Deyukai, and some others, are, are, are Nietzsche and Buddhism-based. Um, and so that, that's, that's one of the inspirations for the dramatic narrative. As Soka Gakkai emerges from its uh, standardized education basis, it also has other other um, revolutionary influences. These largely come via literature. And so um, early in its uh, post-war uh, growth phase, the young men's division in particular are being trained by Toda uh, in a curriculum of novels. And uh, the novels include things like The Count of Monte Cristo, Count of Monte Cristo serves essentially as a model for Sokogakai's own novelized history of its past in a novel, in a serial novel called Ningen Kakume, or The Human Revolution, which of course also inspires the title for, for my own book, because I really think this is, you, you must understand the human revolution to understand Sokogakai, and this is something that every member will tell you as well. Um, the Human Revolution serves essentially as Sokogakai's sacred text. It becomes the core of its own canon, and throughout the book, I try I play with this idea of canonization, of what does it mean to create a canon? What does it mean to be part of canon creation yourself? I think there's something distinctive about that. That that comes up in the chapter following the dramatic narrative chapter. In the dramatic narrative chapter, I do a close reading of one of the chapters of the Human Revolution to look at ways in which um, the Nichiren Buddhism conflates with the modern heroic, romantic, revolutionary ideas that come from a, a host of influences, including world literature. Oh, great. And just continuing our conversation on dramatic narratives in Sokogaka, um, as a new religion, you know, Sokogaka creates new texts, yes. such as Ikeda Daisaku's The Human Revolution, the text that you've been just talking about. So yes. what are some of the distinctive features of this new canon as discussed in yeah. chapter four of the book. Right. I have this idea, um, which I hope is applicable beyond Sokogakai. By the way, I think all of these ideas are not unique at all to Sokogakai. I think Sokogakai, I don't treat it so much as a case study, but I think that people who read this book who are otherwise engaged in studying religion, politics, literature, can find parallels that I hope will be useful elsewhere. And one of those is this notion of canon creation. I call it per the participatory canon. So, um, there's a lot of new religion scholarship, and uh, one of the topics is taken up in the so-called "What is it? What makes a new religion new?" Right? That's always this is our perennial question for those people who who look at uh, religions that are founded in in the modern era. Um, and there's considerable debate about this because most of the time, for one thing, new religions don't like to be called new religions, uh, and Sokogaka is included in that. 
it calls itself a dental tarashukyo, which is like a, a tradition, traditional religious religious uh, group, uh, traditional religion, and it holds to be like an inheritor of the Dharma uh, via Nichiren, who was interested to be the eternal Buddha. So it's actually the oldest teaching. Um, nonetheless, it's chronologically new, comparatively speaking. So it offers its adherents possibilities that aren't po- that aren't available to uh, followers of, of old religions. And one of those things is for you as a believer to personally belong to scripture. What does that mean? It means that uh, something like the, the new, the, the, the human revolution and its sequel, which is a just completed 30 volume, massive, massive work called the new human revolution includes all of these stories. And there are lots of stories about ordinary members all of whom have been anonymized. Nonetheless, they're identifiable to those who know who they are. And so the stories are about these upstanding, virtuous people, and in a few cases also cautionary tales. The idea is that should you be sufficiently virtuous and should your life intersect with that of the honorary president, Ikeda Daisaku, you can appear in a, a, a serialized romantic novel that your fellow adherents treat as scripture. Now, you can then be uh, uh, memorialized long after your death in something that works as canon. That's a really alluring, really exciting possibility. It's not to say, so if you're a Christian, for example, or if you're a, a, a follower of a Buddhist sect, you can't appear yourself in a, in a sacred text. You can say you, you, sort of, you can identify, say, metaphorically with the people who appear in those older texts, but you won't actually be that person. The new religion offers the possibility for you to actually be that person. And I think that that might be one possible answer to what makes a new religion new. And it also answers the questions, why would someone join a group that is otherwise maligned, right? So Sokogaka has largely a, a very negative public image. It's considered to be um, a source of stigma. If you are a Gakkai member, you are essentially sort of, uh, you run the risk of being ostracized. You uh, might have difficulty getting a job or even an apartment, that kind of thing. If you are known to be a Gakkai member, these are the, these are the kinds of experiences that are quite common for, uh, for Gakkai uh, adherents in Japan. So why would you join? Uh, why would you join a group like that? And why would you stay in a group like that? Well, one possibility might be that you are part of this mission and you will be memorialized within it in ways that aren't possible if you are part of a new, an older group. That's what I propose, the participatory canon idea. That's really interesting. It's certainly a really powerful allure to include yourself in the new canon for tradition. And and speaking of membership, um, so in Chapter 5, Cultivating Youth, uh, you explore religion as pedagogy and discipleship in Sokogaka through uh, the standardized education. Can you tell us more about what the socialization process entails? Yeah, so by virtue of just spending so long with members and being uh, so persistent, <laughs> uh, I was able to take part as a non-member in a lot of things that I, I don't think non-members ordinarily take part in. So um, I was, uh, and I was, this, I should be really clear about my methodology too. I, I was always very, very upfront about who I was and what I was doing. I never mis- misrepresented myself. I was like, I am a non-member, but I'm keenly interested. And I really, I think that, uh, What's most important for people to know about in a group like Sokogaka and in Sokogaka specifically is the humanity of the everyday lives of people. Like the, the, the sort of, and so if we, people can understand these sort of the intimate realities of ordinary members, 
I think that uh, they'll be more sympathetic to, to, to them. And I really do believe that to be the case. And so by virtue of that, I got to know people over many years. And uh, one of the things I was able to do was study for and take what was known as the Ning Yong Shikeng, or is still known as this. It's the Ning Yong Shikeng is, uh, it translated literally means appointment examination, which sounds like something for the civil service, which again, I think speaks to this mimetic nation idea. But what it is, it's, um, it's an introductory doctrinal examination. And it's understood that if you're in the youth divisions, the young men's or the young women's divisions, you're encouraged to take this exam, study for uh, basically Buddhist terminology, uh, learning about Nichiren, learning about Soka Gakkai's history, and very specifically also learning about Soka Gakkai's opposition to its now former Buddhist temple parent, Nichiren Shoshu. Um, so that's, it's a way to sort of like uh, cultivate loyalty and, and education within this, within the youth. And so what I, what I learned uh, is basically that the exam is not the test. The test comes from dedicating yourself to the study regimen and immersing yourself in this cycle of campaigns that makes up life in Soka Gakkai. So um, Buddhist groups or religious groups generally in Japan are known to have what's called a Nenchu Gyoji or an annual cycle of rituals. So if you go to a shrine, a Shinto shrine, you'll, you'll see often got like a, even like a, a, a list on, on, a, on, a, on a placard of all the different rituals that make up the annual cycle. You'll see the same thing at Buddhist temples. Sokogaka has essentially made up its own um, cycle of, of events, of campaigns. Uh, and one of those things is an annual, is sort of an annual or, or biannual uh, cycle of examinations, which are modeled on school exams. Uh, so... Uh, the format was precisely that for uh, sort of the entrance examinations for a school. Um, and it was all the, this terminology related to Nietzsche and Buddhism. And so it's also realized a, 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 a way of, of really fostering or really solidifying discipleship. And there's been an increasing focus in Soka Gakkai on this, on this concept of what's called Funi, or the indivisible union of master and disciple, mentor and disciple. So all members are understood to be affectively one-to-one direct disciples with Avikita Daisaku. And so how do you, in a pragmatic way, how do you cultivate that? Well, it turns out you cultivate that through study programs of this nature as a major, as a major factor, a major way to do this kind of thing. So I was able to undertake that. And uh, the chapter goes through that immersion process and looks at ways in which these texts are imbued into the lives of ordinary members as a result. Great. Thank you. And more specifically on, on female members of the organization is chapter six is dedicated to um, the discussion on that. So chapter six, good wives, uh, wise mothers and foot soldiers of conversion uh, you observe a tension between, on the one hand, um, Sokogaka's ideal of woman as wife, mother, and cultivator of the home, and on the other hand, the Gakkai administration's demand on its married women's division to be active outside of the home. So how do Sokogaka members, especially female members, negotiate this tension? Yeah, this is, uh, the, I think, the crux of the matter. Uh, what I was when, In the initial drafts of the book, I was actually struggling with where to uh, how to talk about gender generally, but I think because I, 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 ideally gender should be this 
core, this thread that runs through the entire thing. And I think it does. Throughout the book, uh, women are, are, are actually front and center as, as, the, as the main people I try to focus on. Um, but, and I've, what it, I've noticed there's a tendency in a lot of uh, books on religion to have the woman chapter, and it's almost always the last chapter. And I was trying to avoid that. <laughs> but uh, as it turns out, it was also the culmination of the book. So I think it, it, it worked uh, in, in the arrangement that I have. Here, too, uh, this is where Soka Gaka is by no means unique, right? Um, where women in patriarchal, uh, unequal power relationships engage in uh, strategic means of, of, of realizing their own subjectivity and of articulating themselves within these, within these uh, uh, hierarchical organizations in ways that, lo- that move well beyond what, looks, what it looks like on paper. So Soka Gaka, even by Japan's frankly, misogynist standards, um, is a really conservative organization. There's this massive bureaucratic hierarchy, uh, the working equivalent of a civil service, civil, civil service uh, which has uh, hundreds of vice presidents, not one of whom is a woman. If you are a woman in, uh, in, in the uh, what's called the yakushoku, uh, if you have like, official duties, uh, official post of some sort, salaried or otherwise, in the organization, you're, if you're a woman, you're the only way upwards uh, th- uh, through through the hierarchy is via the young women's or married women's divisions. There are a few um, posts at the local level that where in which women have exert a great deal of influence, but they can't become senior executives, basically. So it looks like they're they're really limited. But the truth is that uh, the Fujinbu, which is the, the married women's division, is the absolute engine, is the, is the power center of Sokogakai. And if the Fujinbu went on strike, Sokogakai would disappear overnight. And so um, I was, the chapter essentially identifies the paradoxes of, of that situation, and especially the, um, the uh, incommensurate demands that are placed on these women who are, on the one hand, understood to have this duty of, of cultivating themselves in, a, in what's known as a Byosai Kenbo, as the good wife, wise mother. This is a, a, a feminine ideal that was promoted in particular uh, from the Meiji era in Japan. That is like when Japan transformed into a modern uh, imperial polity. Uh, where, where women were required essentially to become um, the, the uh, cultivators of the home front to create human resources who would go on to, uh, to uh, you know, perpetuate Japan as, as an expansive empire. Sokogaka has the working equivalent of that with the women in the home uh, uh, building the next generation. At the same time, these same women are called upon to take part in extensive campaigns that, that bring them out of the house. So uh, the for example, uh, electoral campaigns for Colmeto, the political party, and its political allies. Who's on the front lines for all of these things? It's, it's the Fujimbu. It's the married women's division. And so the women are, are torn between these, these uh, rival objectives. And it has uh, difficult effects on them, on their families, uh, and on their children as well. And so uh, I, I through a number of what I think are fairly vivid uh, case that sort of like ethnographic episodes, vignettes, I, I talk about ways in which these unresolved uh, tensions play out in the lives of women adherents. And I end with a description, a long conversation with a woman who uh, uh, 
that runs against a lot of these ideals. So I call her Mihal in the chapter. Um, all the names, by the way, are pseudonyms, of course. Uh, so Mihal uh, uh, was uh, came from an abusive household, uh, Sokagakai household, in which um, she was basically accused of not being worthy of of Sokagakai mission and encouraged to kill herself. In which she committed, she uh, attempted suicide. Uh, and thereafter uh, entered into a, a very long period of depression, uh, just a debilitating depression, essentially becoming what is known in Japan as hikikomori, or um, uh, sort of like a shut-in, uh, refusing to leave the house. So I was, I, I met her kind of at the end of a ten-year period of that, of that uh, really um, terrible state, and she pulled herself out of that state. By turning to Sokogakai's teachings, so it's so Sokogakai's, uh, especially Ikeda's teachings, were simultaneously the weapon used against her, and the way she pulled herself out of that. And so she does not conform in any uh, conceivable way to this this kind of like Mary Woman's ideal, and yet she is this really um, sort of exemplary disciple. And so she. Uh, I kind of rounds out the book in a way uh, as, as kind of like where Soka Gakkai is going forward um, as this uh, having had this rich, complicated legacy based on, on collective activity and now increasingly having to appeal to a generation that is uh, seeking individual means of navigating their, their lives going forward in the post Akita era. Well, these are really interesting kind of reflections and, and insights that you're offering uh, with us. And, and lastly, in the afterwards concluding remarks uh, of the book, you highlighted the, the dilemma that confronts Okagaka as it seeks to appeal to a new generation of members who are driven by aspirations that are not necessarily accommodated by the organization. So what implications might this have on the future development of the organization? That's the big mystery. <laughs> that's that's the question that a lot of people are facing right now. Where is Sokogakai going to go in the future? I'm in Japan right now. Um, I'm fortunate to have received a fellowship that has taken me back into the field where I've spent most of this past year, uh, uh, once again, for the first time in a while, spending months at a time with uh, Gakkai members. And I'm hearing things now that I haven't heard in my 20 years with the group. Uh, really, like, eyebrow-raising stuff. So... Uh, members are now telling me things like, we don't think Sokogakai is going to exist in 20 years. We think there's going to be this, these massive schisms that are going to render the group into a whole bunch of different things. Uh, we think Kometo is going to disappear in 10 years because there's no doctrinal or personal uh, motivation to support this electioneering for this party uh, within Sokogakai after Ikeda Daisaku's lifetime. Um, and so, and also just this kind of a general, as I mentioned earlier, this kind of generational shift that's not exclusive to Sokogaka by any means, but you see in Japan, where younger people have a whole set, they are far more um, socially progressive, they are by no means inspired to, to re- reproduce the, the gendered social expectations of their parents and grandparents. It's really hard for me to imagine why a young woman, for example, would want to uh, just cohere with the married women's divisions ideals uh, what, uh, going forward. That I think they're going uh, to. So it's going to be a real sort of testing ground for for the group. And of course, the big testing ground will be if it can move from charismatic leadership to a routinized form of uh, administration-led uh, religious religious authority. 
So that's essentially what Sokagake uh, Kambu or administrators have been trying to do now for decades, which is trying to basically ease the transition uh, away from direct access to Ikeda as their as their mentor to memorializing Ikeda and the other two founding presidents and moving forward instead uh, following the directives of office holders. Uh, you know, the administrative president and those who fall under him in, 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 in Tokugaka's elaborate hierarchy. Um, that's going to be the big question as to how successful that is. All right. Thank you. Uh, well, Levy, we've taken up a lot of your time. And thank you so much for sharing your incredible research with us. But before we conclude our interview, um, could you tell us a bit about your current research projects? What are you working on right now? Sure. Um, I'm planning a second book that uh, moves out of this, but into a, uh, out, of, out of my Gakkai uh, focus into a much more sort of expansive view. I'm planning to write a book on religious dimensions of Japanese politics. And so right now, as I mentioned, I'm back in Japan. Uh, part of that is sort of uh, reigniting my, my Gakkai research, but I'm also moving into new, new territory where I'm spending a lot of time with uh, Shinto activists or Shinto organizations. I'm spending time with nationalist groups that, that are either themselves religions or, uh, as, as my colleague Jolian Thomas calls it, uh, religion-adjacent groups. Uh, and these are largely affiliated with uh, uh, an organization that has received a lot of attention called Nippon Kaigi, or the Japan Conference which has the ear of the, of the Prime Minister, Abe Shinzo. And so I, I, my plan is to essentially to write a book that will function, that'll be jargon-free, accessible, uh, basically a map of religious aspects of Japanese politics, and will stress the very important fact that if you want to understand politics in Japan, you have to understand religion. Wow, that sounds like a really great project. We will certainly be looking forward to it. I'm sure our listeners will too. And, and finally, I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed reading your book. Um, it was incredible. Hey, I appreciate that so much. Buy two copies. No, I'm just Enjoy your All time. right. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. Okay. Take care. Right. <laughs>